Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Timothy Wilcox. You can follow his excellent newsletter at precursorpoets.com, where he covers many of the issues we'll be discussing today with regard to the internet and literature, as well as a variety of other topics. Um, and I also suggest people check out his podcast, Double Vision, which has been on hiatus for a bit, but has uh, quite a number of excellent episodes in the bank. And also, I believe, if and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you're also relaunching it in the coming year. Is that right? Yeah, I'm recording something later this week uh, to get back at that. Cool. So the Double Vision concept is a pairing of a, a film and a book that came out um, you know, almost at the same time and uh, thinking about the sort of cross currents between them. So I suppose, you know, what, what brings together a lot of your work is an interest in connections between different media. So we'll be thinking about that today in relation to essentially the novel and the internet and particularly social media, um, which is something you've, you've written quite a bit about. And I would say are one of the the most perceptive writers to read on the subject. So I definitely recommend people check that out. But um, to start out, I uh, wanted to just introduce listeners to a concept that you've explored very deeply, which is hyperconnectivity, um, and particularly thinking about how that is manifest in the literary text. So perhaps we could start out if you could just define hyperconnectivity and just kind of give a, an overview of how you've been thinking about that concept and what kinds of um, materials you've been looking at to explore it. Yeah, so I mean, basically there's the dynamic that sort of developed through digital technologies where you have communication, not just between human to human, but also between human and machine and machine to machine so the way in which like if you have a smart device, you know, you communicate some information to this device, but also separately from you, it's communicating to other devices and servers and so on. And, and then, you know, there are all, all sorts of chain reactions. Some things end up publicly online, you know, updates to like some profile somewhere or something. And then someone will see that and you're not actually talking to that person but the, the, all, all this sort of information that gets sort of transmitted around mediated sometimes through machines and, and so on um, and how this broadens out the scope of the, the novel, for instance, in some ways where, you know, the, there, there's so much more of this sort of communication going on. And so if we look at the history of literature, a lot of the, models that we have for writing are much more about human to human connection, but there's all these sorts of ways in which people are interacting with others through networks or interacting with networks themselves, interacting with all sorts of media and so on. Um, and so the, the specific term hyperconnectivity in, in relation to literature, uh, I think I picked up partly from this, this essay by this writer and creative fiction 
uh, instructor, uh, Toby Litt, had an essay in Granta called The Reader in Technology, where he, he talks about, um, you know, gives, gives the example of Ulysses, for instance, that if Odysseus could have texted home to his wife, there would be no story because it would remove the tension of, you know, he's slowly making his way home, coming into all these things. Meanwhile, she's being faced with all these suitors. And, and so the, the, the tension that makes the story is, is that there's this gap in communication. And, and so he, he, his focus in the essay is this idea of like communicative ga- gaps are really important. Um, and then uh, the, the author Joshua Cohen also sort of makes a similar claim in his review for um, uh, Bleeding Edge by Thomas Pinch in the same year. And, and so th- that's sort of how I got into this, where I had been studying, you know, British Romanticism, late 18th, early 19th century stuff, and wasn't reading too much in the way of uh, contemporary literature, but I was very much online. And, you know, so Bleeding Edge came out, for instance, and that was like a big book. And I was interested in that. And that was really interesting. And then once I started uh, my PhD program in, in 2013, I started studying some more contemporary literature and had this idea of kind of just assuming that a lot of it would be, you know, immersed in contemporary life. Obviously you have some stories are historical narratives and, you know, you want to revisit earlier periods and so on, but even in things that are sort of relatively seem like they're set in the present day, there's, I started finding continuously this sort of avoidance of, of that sort of contemporary life. So um, hyperconnectivity, I think, is a sort of good sort of framework where, you know, what, what I'm interested in is, is partly th- through lit this idea of communicative gaps that create narrative tension, but also the ways in which uh, you have communication, not just between humans, but with, through machines and so on. And all of this stuff that that doesn't really quite come across, you know, just in terms of like an inner monologue or something that stuff gets sort of thrown out into feeds and so on and cycled around. Yeah, I mean, and this, so this question of plotting is interesting um, and is worth dwelling on a bit more, I think. So, you know, one one effect of hyperconnectivity as you were just um describing is this kind of um, reduction of of sort of informational gaps between characters of the sort that historically, you know, if you look at the 19th century novel, there are all sorts of events that are propelled by characters not having, you know, the full picture of some situation and it taking a while for them to be apprised of that. And so that delay creates, as you said, narrative tension. It also creates the conditions for sort of plots to um, to unfold, right? And so, um, you know, one problem that hyperconnectivity creates is this kind of um, the the removal of these gaps, um, which potentially uh, creates difficulties for the development of plot. Am I am I capturing that adequately? Um, yes, yeah, somewhat, but, but actually, so, you know, the, the, the way, so like lit framed it back in, I think it was like 2013 or so, you know, is, is that it's almost sort of at odds that there are these, there's such rapid communication that it sort of 
hard to keep information away, to keep characters apart, and so on. Um, and then this is also what Cohen says about sort of bleeding edge in its context, the way in which um, part of the, the what that novel dramatizes is the way in which everyone starts to suddenly get cell phones and so on. And then, you know, everyone's sort of a quick call away and you start to lose these sorts of chance encounters and things. And um, but, but what I think actually is, is that there are still a lot of gaps you know, and sort of just how things function, that there are these sorts of misreadings, you know, and, and so you look at classic, you know, narratives, say something like, you know, in the early 19th century, a character would send a letter and it would take, you know, some time to transport through, you know, physical space and, and all the sort of mechanisms by which it's delivered. And in that time, th- there's, there's, you know, the, the dramatic irony where, you know, this information was sent out, but before it reaches its recipient, they make all sorts of decisions, you know, say they get married off to someone else, not knowing what's in the letter and, and all these sorts of things fall apart and so on. Um, or, or, you know, something is we're sort of conveyed in a letter and writing is misunderstood. I think a lot of these things do happen. It's in different timescales, which is um, complicating and it's in um, just very different forms. You know, I, I think the way in which, you know, having information that's conveyed, you know, through a Facebook feed or an, an Instagram post or a Twitter thread or something, uh, instead of like two characters just con- conversing, I think can come off, you know, somewhat boring at times. It can come off, um, you know, maybe some fears about it being dated in however many years, things like that. I, so I think there, there's a lot to be done, but I think there's a lot of hesitancy and, and uncertainty around how to actually do it and make it come off as a good, compelling narrative. And so one, one of the things that I'm really interested in, in looking at the sort of novels we're going to be discussing today is how these are setting up the sort of new models for you know, what will then come later, you know, how will other writers continue to sort of start to write about these technologies is, you know, a lot of the stuff that's coming out now is not just examples of that, but it's, it's setting up models that will, you know, potentially be repeated or maybe they sort of just really don't work and people will drop them over time. Yeah. And I should say, um, you know, you've, You've written uh, pretty widely and and also extremely interestingly about sort of hyper-connected poetry. Um, so, you know, we, we could uh, talk about that. I, I've sort of uh, chosen to focus more on the novel because it's, it's sort of my greater area of familiarity. Um, and, you know, I'm also sort of somewhat artificially restricting our focus to just three novels, um, which are... Hari Kunzru's Red Pill, Lauren Euler's Fake Accounts, and Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This. So, you know, I've sort of, um, I've selected these in part because they're, they're quite recent. Um, but, you know, it is, uh, there is this kind of larger canon of works that, we, you know, or I don't know if it's a canon, that might be, um, 
an excessive way of describing it, but there is this kind of um, lineage of, let's say, the internet novel or something like it that's developed um, in the past decade or two. And obviously Pynchon's Bleeding Edge, which you mentioned before, is, is a particularly significant one of those. Um, I would think, uh, you know, others that I might think of are you know, Dave Eggers, The Circle, and um, maybe Joshua Cohen's Book of Numbers. Um, so I don't know, you know, is there anything broader before we get into the three that I'm sort of, again, somewhat um, artificially confining our discussion to? Is there anything else you would say about the kind of broader trajectory of these kinds of novels and any others that you would bring out as being particularly interesting in that lineage? Um, sure. I mean, one thing um, that, that I th think is interesting, and, and so I did this like 10 week, or I guess it now would just be like 10 post, you know, sequence on literature and hyperconnectivity. One of the things I wrote about there I thought was interesting is um, Gary Steingart's Super Sad True Love Story, uh, I think is, is really interesting in sort of obvious surface level ways. And um also, I have, I have uh, a lot of more sort of specific thoughts about the ending. Um, I think that's worth checking out. He has a new book out last month that I haven't gotten to. Uh, so I don't, I don't know what to say about that. But I did think um, something uh, that I basically want to sort of check out with the, the new book is it's about like people going off into a quarantine house. And so what I'm sort of intrigued about in that concept is um, back when Super Sad True Love Story was coming out, he wrote a short essay about kind of th this this sort of fantasy of going off into, you know, away from the city to where they no longer have cell phone service and just sort of, uh, what is what he, what he says something about like Facebooking IRL or something like that, that they're, they're or something like that. They're, they're connecting face to face uh, for real um now um there's it was like a little on the nose so i'm interesting i'm interested to see in the novel how he sort of explores this idea of uh kind of getting away from the city a bit while at the same time in reality this this was a period in which a lot of people actually got much more deeply and consistently online for work and school and socializing and so on um than before uh but but yeah, so that's one example. But yeah, I was, I was excited to talk about these three that you highlighted. Uh, I actually just just finished rereading the the Lockwood text today, so um, that one that one I enjoyed uh, ultimately, and um, had had some wariness at, when I was first starting it the first time. But we'll get into that a bit. Did you end up finishing that? Because I know when you first sort of raised this idea, I think you hadn't read the Lockwood. I confess that I did not. Um, I, that is the one that I have not finished. So I will be relying on your, uh, on, on your, um, you know, expertise and uh, ability to, uh, you know, convey the essentials of it here. Um, so yeah, I did, I did, I did read and I actually reviewed Red Pill and then I did read the other one pretty, there was uh, actually, pretty closely, um... but I, I, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, <laughs> there were, you know, contingent 
personal reasons why I've sort of been swamped with other things and not gotten around to finishing it. But there were things about it that irritated me in the opening section. So yeah, it does could, open a bit rough. That. Um, yeah. Do you want to start there? Yeah. I mean, why not? Um, so, you know, th- this, I mean, I think you also, you know, th- there's a connection to Lauren Euler's fake accounts here because I think you, you indicated in what you wrote about them that, in a sense, um, you know, one of the things that Euler sort of parodies in one of her sections is this kind of um, fragmented style. So we can talk about that and how she's, you know, it, it's 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 a it's sort of hate it's almost hate written in a sense that section of the Euler novel, and um, then y- you sort of suggest that the Lockwood novel is essentially written in the type of style that Euler is parodying, or at least the, the first part of it is. Um, so, but anyway, uh, yeah, the, the opening of the Lockwood is, um, you know, it's quite strange and uh, has a, an oddly kind of elusive style that I found it difficult to, um, I, I guess, to not just be frustrated by. Um, so I don't know, was, I mean, what, perhaps with that novel, what, what was I missing and what, you know, you, you said that particularly on your second reading, you got quite a bit out of it. So, you know, what, what do you think it brings to the table that is worth, uh, worth yeah. thinking about here? Well, I mean, so, so one of the big problems with this, which is also kind of tying together all three of them is they're not just sort of like internet novels but they're all very timely around the trump presidency and so on um and and then also brexit comes up in the lockwood and so particularly early on there's there's all sorts of little political snipes and so it's it's in this fragmented style where it's like you know one short paragraph or two and then moves on to a completely different topic and you know it's it's all of this sort of scattered sorts of things that you might see talked about online over the course of, you know, some relatively short span of time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so it starts out really kind of annoyingly where it's just like all these, these anxieties around things like, I don't know, s- says some comment to some, some British person. And then it was like, Oh, did I do a Brexit? I feel like I did a Brexit kind of kind of things that are you know reflecting the the sort of way people sort of think and write on sites like twitter and you know i mean what what i sort of what it it gets a little much more over the course of the novel i think um tender in in its its understanding of sort of contemporary life and and so going back and rereading the beginning, I sort of got a little bit more of the, the sense that, you know, I think ultimately Lockwood is writing from, you know, really liking um, a lot about sort of contemporary life, but, but um, you know, also has qualms. Uh, one, one of the recurring ideas is, is this, you know, idea that, uh, you know, everyone's having like a, a big party online in, in what Lockwood calls the portal, but, you know, could be sort of whatever sort of internet feeds that you 
circle through. Um, but uh, that somehow this is this is also then responsible for the election of Donald Trump because one of his big platforms, for instance, was Twitter. Um, he had a sort of popular, you know, Reddit subsection had a lot of support on, you know, image boards and, um, you know, had, had this, this very prominently online groundswell of support in, in various forms and had his own sort of major platform that got, you know, a lot of attention in a way that most political, you know, Twitter accounts and so on really don't get. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it was, it's sort of really sort of annoying at times seeing the, these sorts of takes that, you know, I think you really want that sort of remove that that Pynchon gets, for instance, in Bleeding Edge, where he's pu- com- publishing this in 2013, but it's about 2001. And you can sort of look back on that era and what all sort of happened there, the shifts that took place at the sort of remove and really sort of understand it in a fuller way. Um, and, and so this is still, I think, a little too much caught up in, you know, these anxieties around, uh, you know, how things are going. One, there was a paragraph I noticed actually in the rereading where that I guess I wouldn't have noticed in February or no, there was, well, this is the paragraph I noticed in the rereading, for instance, that talks about like, you know, just wishing to sort of go into a coma for a year uh, and disappear and come back and, and Trump is no longer president and just to have that sense of freedom. And uh, I was sort of thinking about, you know, so now that it's it's out and we're talking about it and so on, right? So he, you know, did end up getting booted from office. Uh, but then we also lost this year from the, the pandemic and so on. Um, or, you know, not utterly lost, but, you know, large gaps in various fashions. But so, yeah, so th- th- those ways in which I, I think it's a little too timely and, and would be more interesting, you know, to write something like this five, 10 years later, I think w- would work better. Um, but, but yeah, so it gets into much more, you know, th- these ways that seem very kind of trivial and, and silly. So she gets sort of semi-internet famous for a post asking, can dogs be twins? Uh, she has a cat named, the, the speaker of the novel has a cat named Dr. Butthole and comments, you know, how in the past people would give cats, you know, nice cutesy names, but now the culture is, is something like Dr. Butthole, which is mock professional and crude and so on. And there's, there's a sort of childishness to the whole thing. But what happens is her sister has a baby, um, which, which is the sort of precious, you know, draws in attention in a different way from the portal. Um, but then also the, the baby has these medical complications and there's a sense of like the baby, you know, who knows how long the baby has to live, restructures her attention. Uh, and then there, there's, there's all these concerns about what is, what is it that we're leaving 
future generations to pick up on. And, you know, so there's, there's critiques in there of internet culture, but, but I also, I think there's something, you know, in capturing it in the detail she does, which I think the other authors really don't sort of get as deep into for, you know, reasons like, I, I think it just sort of comes off maybe a little too crude, a little too unliterary, a little too, you know, going to be antiquated very soon to get into, a, you know, all sorts of specific memes and joke formats and, you know, little small in-jokes within various circles uh, to, you know, that, that, that there is something uh, being uh, developed across these and, and there is a lot of, you know, interesting things going on in, in, in lives that are, that are sort of meaningful when you really get down to them that, that I think it's, gets lost. So like comments at one point, how, you know, you can't get mad if someone, you know, say screen caps your post on one website and shares it around and say like, Oh, you can't say like, Oh, that's mine because they've, they've taken on the meaning so much for themselves that it's sort of theirs now that there's people living out these very rich personal and, and emotional lives through these, these things. And, and so we're, we're, we're focusing at times on, you know, trivial manifestations, but, but actually there's a lot there that's not trivial. This is also getting towards something else. I, I mean, it, it touches on this in a few different dimensions, but um, you know, if we're thinking about the relationship between these media here, in other words, fiction and, you know, posting or, you know, the online or um, social media, <clears throat> you know, is thinking about the, te- the, diff- the distinct temporalities. And so, you know, one problem I think is the, the, the sort of different expiration dates that one expects for these different kind of you know, textual forms. Um, so you have um, a, this vast realm of textual production, which is oriented towards complete ephemerality. And then you have the novel, which is oriented towards a certain kind of permanence. And so, you know, that's kind of one, one way that, that um, the, the attempt to translate one into the other um, faces some interesting challenges. Um, and I mean, the other, uh, you know, the other interesting aspect that's related to this is the sort of up-to-dateness issue, right? I mean, you bring up Pynchon. Another, I, I was telling you about this recently, but I was reading um, Elif Badiaman's The Idiot, which is kind of partly about, you know, going to college in like 1995 and first using email. And so, but it's written in 2017. So it's, um, it's describing that, um, you know, the kind of uh, distinct, you know, possibilities created by that new form of communication at a considerable distance. Um, you know, whereas, uh, I mean, and, and this is partly, um, you know, the, there's, as media have sort of evolved in a accelerating manner and, um, and, you know, fiction has sort of tried to keep up. Um, 
it's also kind of, um, you know, be, because the, the particular valences of those media get caught up in the sort of events of the day and become associated with them, it seems like that that's, you know, part of why these novels, like nobody could think about social media in the past five years without thinking about basically Trump, right? As, you know, um, my one-time guest and uh, Twitter friend Oliver Bateman says, you know, he was the the big orange sun around which everything revolved, right? So you couldn't really um, do a novel about social media without it also being about him um, in some sense. So, but then, you know, that sort of, um, because of the, on one hand, the ephemerality of the, that's, that's sort of built into the medium. And on the other hand, the, the sort of churn of the news cycle, it, um, you know, writing these novels is carries that risk of datedness, um, which kind of works against what, you know, the, the, the sort of temporality of the novel form as something uh, which, which strives to a certain permanence. Yeah. I mean, but one thing I think that will be especially dated is, is what you brought up before that, you know, so, you could see an example in the Lockwood, the sort of fragmentary style of just like very short sections that just gives us very sort of rapid reading that can sort of be picked up and put down wherever. Uh, and this is something that Lauren Euler has sort of written critically about in book reviews. And so her narrator in Fake Accounts has a section in the middle that sort of takes this up in... Um, sort of ingest and keep sort of having these little side comments about how, you know, that it's a bad idea and, and so on. And, and that she's especially bad at doing it. And it's, it's a sort of long section. It's like 40 ish pages or so um, that, you know, just sort of goes on in a weird way that uh, just really, you know, doesn't sit well at times in that, you know, it's, it's writing in a way that doesn't have, you know, saying with Lockwood that there is a sense ultimately of, of care for how she's writing and the things she's writing about uh, with Euler. There are these periods where it's like just this sense of sort of resentment at the whole idea of the style she's writing in, which is like, you know, we just don't write in it then. Um, but I think that, so, you know, something like that will also be dated in a way where it's like, you know, people, you know, in the future who don't aren't in on the sort of stylistic trends of the 2010s literature and who aren't in on Lauren Euler's book reviews from the 2010s aren't really going to sort of get that section, I don't think. Right. Yeah, it's um, and, you know, it, it does. I think that, right, there's sort of that, um, there's that element of, uh, I suppose, of having kind of access to grind in the <laughs> um, that, you know, seems particularly pronounced in that novel in a, in a stylistic way, as you say. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it seems notable to me that, um, all three of these are, so, I mean, the Euler and the Lockwood um, are also, you know, they pu were published like within a month or two of each other. Is that right? Yeah. I think it was like a week apart. 
Yeah. So, you know, all three of these, it's just interesting to, you know, think also, you know, in terms of temporality, like it's the temporality of publishing, right? It still takes a long time. That was something else I wanted to mention, right? It's, it still takes a long time between the delivery of a manuscript and the release of a book, right? Um, You know, often something like a year to a year and a half can, can pass. (laughs) Right. So that's, you know, that's a, a, a really interesting aspect of this because um, it, again, it, it stands in direct contrast to the temporality of the kind of very online world in which, which is being described in which the, in which the authors exist. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the really sort of rough things about reading these books where it's like, you know, so red pill is half a year earlier. It's in September, 2020, um, you know, sort of just before the election, the other two books come out sort of just after, um, you know, these books would have been finished, you know, much earlier, but, but they're still caught up in, you know, what, it, what is a sort of unfinished story at the time of, of, you know, the Trump presidency and so on and, and writing, you know, with a very prominent presence in the, the novels. And it's it sort of just, you know, I, I think there, there's, there's something that really doesn't quite click together there. Um, also with the, with the fragmented section in the Euler fake accounts book, uh, you know, so says at one point, for instance, but fragmentation is one of the worst aspects of modern life. It's extremely stressful. Fragmented is a euphemism for interrupted. Why would I want to make my book like Twitter? And, and then also comments at some point how books of collected tweets would be better as memoirs or novels with no tweets in them. And, you know, I think that that's sort of, you know, there's something to that where obviously these are very different things, but like, you know, so you, the collected tweets form the basis of a character that you can then make more interestingly into a novel character and craft that out into a coherent story that, that sort of trails together. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, something that's missing is, is saying like that fragmented style is like Twitter, which, you know, somewhat there is this idea of, you know, Twitter is a series of, of posts, but, but I think, you know, the, the way in which they, they weave together and the Lockwood, for instance, isn't necessarily how you weave together a, you know, a Twitter account, but, then there's the this Harriet the Spy bit, which is one of the most talked about sections from fake accounts. Uh, I, I think it's something that she like read at a lot of events and so on as well. Um, but basically, the, the, this idea of you know reading this Harriet the Spy thing and how someone you know reads Harriet's private journal, and and so you know so then she doesn't get the uh, lesson which is as she's phrases it lying or omitting the truth is sometimes necessary to maintain friendships. So as a kid doesn't get this idea and thinks like, Oh, I should write mean things about this other girl and sort of kind of leave her my private journal for her to read and then get upset about and so on. Uh, But says that the idea that everyone I knew might care about my private thoughts was appealing as was the possibility of people knowing my negative internal monologue without my having to tell them. And so the, that, that idea is, is much more Twitter, I think, than the sort of structure of like shortness is, is in particular, but this idea of uh, the sort of negative 
internal monologue without this direct communication, right? This is what I was talking about with the hyperconnectivity thing is, you know, you're not telling every person in your life, your negative thoughts, you throw it into a tweet and maybe you make a joke of it or something, but it's then sort of conveyed to everyone on your network. And then everyone who, you know, if it gets retweeted and so on, extends outward. And there was another bit about um, Twitter. Um, well, so, so this this is um, the thing with with, uh, with the the boyfriend um, at the beginning has the uh, Instagram account. That's this very shit posty kind of conspiratorial thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so she wants to break up with him because it's sort of a, a right wing sort of conspiracy sort of, although it doesn't really give a lot of examples of that. Um, you know, the, the one example really drawn out on is, you know, it's like the, September 11th attacks and it's like you know there's a conspiracy of like you know there was inside job there's a demolition controlled demolition things like that um so it's like an image of that and it says demolition squid and and so she's obsessing over like the typos and trying to use that to sort of justify like well maybe he's not a conspiracy nut maybe it's sort of for laughs which seems to be the case. And then he, he does this other prank of faking his death and so on. Um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hope that's all right. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. Um, um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, the, there, there's a passage I, I'd like to read if, if, if that's yeah. Um, so, so this is, this is sort of really getting to the, the heart of this um, dynamic where, you know, these books are all very much about the internet and people who are very online, but doesn't necessarily always sort of narrate that experience, which is what part of why I end up kind of enjoying the Lockwood, which is that it's almost um, incessantly that sort of online experience, even in its sort of really kind of annoying uh, ways at times, but um so she so it, it comes out like after a year or so that the 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 guy didn't actually die that he faked his death he shows up at a party and so on and eventually gets an email like oh I, i'm so sorry and she's like for oh for what and she, and then they explain and so says that she was on twitter all day but blames the algorithm for not serving her the story about this, this guy who faked his death and so on uh, that everyone else was talking about, but too afraid to like bring up directly with her. Cause it seemed like a sore subject, but so, you know, complains that, you know, somehow the algorithm didn't feed it to her because she was on Twitter all day, um, which, you know, seems somewhat implausible where, you know, if, if all your friends are sharing and talking about something, you know, it'll come up, somewhere presumably um but it was interesting is is it seems um not in keeping with what is actually sort of narrated so she says 
uh, okay cupid was frenzied with activity and, and so this is a big plot of the, the novel is setting up an okay cupid account in which he takes on various fake personas in a sort of uh copy of the ex-boyfriend's you know sort of seeming fakeness with the you know persona with her and then this sort of conspiracy account person in private um and so so okay cupid with was in a frenzy and i spent much of the day copying pasting the same bad joke to various men i'm sure your inbox has been flooded with dates videos from the day were linked and shared the aisle of a city bus became a riverbed and travelers lifted up their feet as they continued to text or film the scene. So this is a video she's seeing online um, of a bus in the area. Laughing figures in bright hoods toted yoga mats across a washed intersection. The videos were astounding in a wholesome way. They didn't seek pity for the drivers of submerged sedans or soaked teens watching in awe and so on and so on. So there's the paragraph of that. And then it says, while I was eating dinner, Genevieve texted, wow, of course, don't try to come up tomorrow and so on. Uh, gets this text from a friend and then says, and more hours of nothing in particular stretched out before me. I got into bed with my com- computer and maneuvered among my reading material, a short story, a long piece on refugees, uh, a pair of op-eds about how mainstream Democrats could adopt the more progressive agenda favored by millennials, at Helen of Troy, WI, rejecting both op-eds on the grounds that mainstream Democrats saw their relationship to reckless millennials as fundamentally parental, and they only like children as status symbols of their self-victimization until a little parenthetical one appeared on the tab to indicate that I had an email, right? And so this is her account of her day is so messaging guys, you know, copy and paste a joke on OkCupid, watching some videos of the flooding from the security of her apartment, um, receiving one text from her friend sitting down to read some op-eds and stuff. Um, And then you get an account of one tweet responding to the op-eds and then she gets the email. Right. And so this is, this is what is sort of summed up as, Oh, I couldn't have known this huge major plot point because I was on Twitter all day, but the stupid algorithm didn't serve me the story. Um, And, and so there's, you know, I mean, a decent amount that happens there. Uh, but if, if you were to actually sort of just sit down and spend all day online, you know, while it's pouring out and so on, that, you know, there's, there's so much happening in that time that sort of gets sort of lost in, in this narrative. And, you know, so there, there's this tendency, you know, of some writers just won't even touch it, you know, won't even write about the sort of thing. Um, but then also to the extent that some writers do. So, so, you know, this whole novel is sort of about someone who's deeply online is, you know, there, there are all, all these gaps in which, you know, I mean, not all that much happens in this day. And so it's, you know, it's like, you know, so she's missing the story, but what all was she, you know, really seeing instead, you know, so like one, one little spat about how, you know, Democrat strategy and a handful of videos of the flood and so on. Right. So there, there's there's all, all the sort of trivial stuff that sometimes annoyingly makes up the Lockwood thing, which would have, you know, been the what appears briefly as 
more hours of nothing in particular stretched out before me that that gap you know is what Lockwood sort of develops out as this whole sort of meaningful life that that sort of gets lost in the Euler novel yeah I I wonder if another relevant passage from Euler is the women's march section um you know which is I, you know, when I read it, I kind of compared it in my mind to some of um, Stendhal or Tolstoy on in describing, you know, scenes of famous battles, you know, whether um, Waterloo or Austerlitz, where, you know, the kind of point of those is to kind of deflate the heroic pretensions of history, where you you just kind of have these people who are experiencing you know, this, this day that goes on to become sort of, you know, monumentalized as a, as a sort of um, historic event with, a you know, sort of capital H, you know, but it's described through the kind of trivialities and kind of minor annoyances and so on that the protagonist experiences. Um, and so, and there's, you know, it's just, they're just, these battles are described as these kind of scenes in which there's no, there's no there there, right? They're just kind of, there's, you know, there's actually no battle, right? There's just, uh, it's it's sort of like, you know, Thatcher, there's no society. It's like, there's no battle. There's just like a bunch of random people stumbling around trying to shoot each other and not really knowing what's going on, right? It doesn't really add up to anything until it's later kind of converted into that retroactively. So similarly, I mean, the Women's March, I'd say is, it's similar and it's kind of, it has this kind of um, deflating tone where it's, it's clearly kind of poking fun at the grandiosity of, um, I, I mean, on one hand, it's, it's poking fun at the kind of um, political grandiosity of the, the way it was presented and sold in the media and the way it was, you know, posted about and so on. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's in some ways kind of the opposite because it's, it's an event that is immediately manufactured as a media event, right. And is experienced by those attending it as a media event. Um, so it's very much unlike those battles where, you know, the people experience them are just sort of stumbling around confused, but, but later on, they can be kind of enshrined in the historical record and turned into something that has some kind of coherence and meaning. Whereas with the women's march, it's like, it's this, you know, mimetic event that that is being um, is being sort of enacted, um, having already been kind of, you know, invented and and um, kind of uh, constructed ideologically, and then the narrator is kind of offering a sort of counter narrative, um, which you know partly has to do with the fact that she's you know, it's, she's kind of unclear about why she's even going. She's just kind of, you know, going along with it, but she doesn't really, um, you know, she, she, she doesn't seem particularly impressed um, or particularly passionate. Um, and then, you know, she catches a ride with these other women who seem a little bit more so, and she's, you know, mildly kind of mocking of them. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of this, um, again, it, it, it's this attempt to narrate a sort of historic event that, you know, kind of does, you know, looks at it from below and from the perspective of somebody who's kind of disaffected and distracted, um, not particularly engaged. And I think it's trying to, 
you know, present that in part as a counter narrative of like whatever presumably large percentage of the attendees were kind of in that mind state rather than the kind of fervent, um, the fervent true believer mindset. But, you know, it's, it's also interesting just as it's, it's where, um, you know, the, the, there's a shift from the private to the public. Um, but, you know, what it does is relentlessly sort of reprivatize the events because, and, and I suppose the sort of situational irony of the situation of the, the, that moment in the narrative is that it's after she's discovered her boyfriend is the, you know, is running this, um, this pseudonymous uh, conspiracy account. And so it's like he, you know, she's, she's essentially sort of sleeping with the enemy and she's planning to break up with him at this point, but hasn't yet. And then she's kind of, uh, she's, and then, and then it's on her trip to DC that she gets the news that he's died. Right. So it's, yeah, I think she's sort of there Yeah, and then slips off to a cafe or something. Yeah. And so anyway, it's, it, to me, that was like one of the more interesting parts of the novel, just because it it's it's where I think she's attempting to, you know, engage with that sense of of writing a novel of the contemporary moment and of trying to, you know, narrate history from a certain angle, but but also create this kind of um, this kind of clash of the private and the public. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that scene, but it it seemed like an interesting maybe contrast to the one that you were just describing. Yeah. I mean, so what's interesting with that is, you know, as you're saying, she's really not that interested kind of above it all, but as a sort of Brooklyn media worker is sort of peer pressured into going. Uh, And, and so actually, I mean, I want to look real quick at the opening passage, which is this sort of William Gibson note, Gibson sort of, bit of you know so he describes cyberspace as this consensus hallucination you know that that there's this sort of all this information that sort of becomes sort of hallucinated world through the consensus of the masses who inhabit it um but anyway so it sort of starts was you know consensus was the world was ending or would begin to end soon if not by existent exponential environmental catastrophe then by some combination of nuclear war, the American two-party system, patriarchy, white supremacy, gentrification, globalization, data breaches, and social media, and so on and so on. It goes on from there. Um, and, and so there's the you know consensus hallucination around the sort of development of this media event with the Women's March. But what's interesting is that so she's not that interested in that exactly, but you know, is sort of can't sort of pull herself out of the general sort of trajectory of those sorts of feelings. And so, you know, then with the the ex-boyfriend, there is, you know, a blatant lie, which is that he says he's not on social media and not really interested in that world, but then finds out he's secretly running a fairly popular Instagram account, um, which is, you know, so there, that's like a very real breach of trust and so on. But, but in particular is upset at the sort of politics of it, even though from what we see, it seems uh, fairly benign and jokey and so on, and not even necessarily caught up in, you know, contemporary politics necessarily. 
Um, but th- there's this sense of, you know, so the novel is called fake accounts. And so she uses this word account several times in talking about this, this whole, her anxieties around this saying, you know, when I met someone I liked, I wanted him in my orbit virtually or physically or mentally at all times. I would want to know what he was thinking and doing and saying when I was not around. And this, this goes back to the, the Harriet the spy bit and, and so on, which is, you know, the hyperconnectivity desire of people to know your thoughts without saying them directly. Um, I would want to account for him, she says. And, and so there's this, this anxiety around, um, you know, that if she can't account for her boyfriend as this good guy and, you know, details of his sort of private life get out and she can't account for him, um, then it will reflect poorly on her and she might risk being exiled. Um, and, and so the, there, there's this, this anxiety about sort of falling outside of the consensus that, you know, then sort of drives this idea of, you know, sort of defensively making up all these sort of fake personas, um, instead of, you know, the sort of authentic sort of account of things, which, which I think is sort of part of the, the defense of the, the uh, fragmentary section, which is done out of the sense of dislike, but, but there, there's, there is the central issue with the sort of narrator, which is that, you know, she um, struggles to sort of have an a sort of authentic account of herself um, because of this sort of external pressure. And have you, have you read um, Zadie Smith's short story uh, no, now more than ever? I have not. So this this is like a little, it's like a real allegory kind of about sort of like cancel culture stuff, um, you know, very, very, you know, in that sort of allegorical world of like, you know, the, all the sort of like NYU faculty would be in this like apartment building and every sort of afternoon they would point big arrows at their windows and whoever they're pointing their arrows at would be like the sort of subject of derision for the day. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's like this weird strategic battle of like people trying to gang up on someone to focus attention on that person instead of them. Um, but she uses this term a lot there uh, beyond the pale, you know, which is this is this idea of like, you know, people will say things uh, that are sort of not acceptable. So like the, the narrator there, for instance, ends up having the sort of unacceptable take on this classic movie and, you know, is, is sort of exiled out, uh, goes beyond the pale. And, and then there, there's, there's no sense of return from there. Um, but the, so this, this is, uh, I thought it was, it was interesting. So, cause Euler uses the same beyond the pale term and talking about Felix that he's sort of gone too far and sort of can't be redeemed. And, and that, you know, one of the, one of the concerns in the, the Smith story is that if you talk to someone who's beyond the pale, then it infects you as well. Um, and, and so something, something interesting in, in this is um, so that this writer, Brandon Taylor wrote about the, 
Euler and Lockwood on Substack in this post called I read your little internet novels. Um, but he, he was talking about ha- them as, as sort of Gothic in, in their sense of overwhelming sort of guilt and shame and so on and complicity in some sort of tainted experience, which is this online world, which, you know, is partly the getting Trump elected thing and partly all these, the sorts of, um, dynamics of like you don't want to be associated with Felix for instance um but so so this there was a there was a quote from this I thought was an interesting transition into the red pill which um Brendan Taylor doesn't talk about but he says I don't feel utterly object for using Twitter and Instagram I don't find my behavior in meat space warped beyond recognition when I'm with friends I don't feel the lunar gravity of my phone I don't feel that I should be elsewhere doing something else when I'm online. And when I do feel that I just go watch law and order. Uh, and, and, you know, so th- th- there, that is one of the sort of dynamics. So like, there's the way in which we saw with the Euler, which is like, you know, instead of writing about being online, well, it'll just be a throwaway line about wasting hours, endlessly scrolling nonsense and then, you know, within that, the sense of like that some, you know, not just that you don't want to write about in detail any of that scrolling, but that it's it's almost sort of shameful that that time was even spent in that way and that and so on. And and, and so Lockwood is trying to sort of build back up, you know, some of what's actually going on in that time. But um, this idea of like, oh, you know, when, when you have these sort of weird feelings, I'll just go watch Law and Order is um, kind of the, the trap that uh, Harry Kunzru's narrator falls into, which is that he's supposed to be writing about uh, Kleist as part of a fellowship, and he's at, in this weird institute, uh, and he keeps sort of sneaking off and watching this police drama called Blue Lives. Yeah, and so this character is quite different from our other two protagonists. Um, I mean, he's a male written by a male author it's clearly a kind of you know autobiographical stand-in in part although he's i'd say heavily parodied sort of in the first section at least he's he's clearly a kind of um you know quite mediocre <laughs> sort of figure as a as a writer and intellectual and seems you know i mean one of the explicit um notions i mean in relation to um the sort of consensus um point you were just discussing you know his concern is sort of this lack of conviction that he he i mean he seems very much within a sort of consensus um you know he he's a kind of you know a kind of npc almost um sort of npc narrator um and he's he but he's sort of self-aware enough to recognize that his own lack of conviction is somewhat um, undignified and pathetic. And so he's, he's sort of tormented by that. Um, you know, he's going to, to do this project in, in Germany that he doesn't really, that he gets a fellowship to do, but he seems to not believe in at all or have any particular, um, you know, actual passion behind. And so, you know, I, I think in this case, um, he's and he's also not really so much of a very online character in the way that um, the, the two narrators of the other novels are. Um, he's he's older. 
um, you know, he's, he's married and has kids and he's, um, he's kind of, uh, you know, of a, as presumably like Kunzer's sort of Gen X, um, you know, background and sensibility. And so he, uh, he really is, um, you know, he, what he gets, I mean, the sort of very online world that he gets absorbed into is, um, sort of alien to him in a different way and to a different degree. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the other connection I wanted to make is also that, you know, part of what interests me is this, um, you know, and this relates to the whole Trump point, right. Which, which is clearly the sort of central to red pill. Um, you know, there's this sense of these dark, but, creatively potent energies that circulate on the internet and that do not necessarily have, um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, desirable ends as far as the, the sort of, uh, New York literati are concerned. And so all of these novels I'd say have some consciousness of that as a phenomenon, right. That, that you have this, um, this kind of, uh, cauldron of, of, sort of, um, you know, quite um, unhinged and sort of unconstrained creative energies that are bubbling up, right? And that are sort of, they can sort of be channeled in certain ways, but that have no particular um, direction, right? They're just kind of there and they're, um, they're largely, you know, being expressed anonymously. And so, you know, one of the things these novels are trying to figure out is how, or, you know, whether those kinds of energies can be sort of in some sense, um, in some sense borrowed or sort of learned from, or, you know, kind of um, brought within the orbit of the novel. Um, and so in this case, you know, I, I sort of read Red Pill as a sort of prolonged exploration of that because essentially it's, um, about this narrator who's who's quite you know sort of feckless and lacking in conviction and is ostensibly a sort of you know writer and intellectual but but seems to have nothing really animating what he's doing um and what he comes into contact with is this extremely potent um form which is actually you know most most importantly, this cop show, Blue Lives, but which he then kind of comes to believe is animated by this um, deeper and sort of conspiratorial agenda, but that is also kind of um, infused with these dark energies that, you know, in some way are, are, are the opposite of his, um, his somewhat sort of feeble uh, creative and sort of highly you know, attenuated creative drive. So, you know, that's, I guess, how I would set up that novel. And it, so it does have sort of a different, um, you know, the, the narrative framing of it is quite, quite different from the other two. The similarity is really that, I mean, or at least one similarity is the way that it, um, it, it involves this kind of encounter of, of literature with this other, which are, which again, are these kind of, um, these kind of dark, um, but incredibly potent sort of creative forces that, that are, are sort of bubbling up. Yeah. I mean, I mean, something that was interesting through the, 
primary era in like the 2016 election was, you know, that there would just be 24 seven media coverage of, you know, everything Trump said or tweeted and everything sort of tweeted or posted about, you know, anyone in his circle, you know, all this sort of intense close reading of like internet memes and so on. So like CNN, you know, made a big scuff and, and ended up doxing some underage teenager guy um, for making this sort of gif on Reddit in which Trump um, does some sort of wrestling slam. I forget what, what exactly, but he like body slams the CNN logo basically, um, you know, and, and digging into all of this. And then like the, there was this intense sort of close reading project around the, the Wikipedia leaks and so on. And there is this way in which uh, it was this moment where people, I think, got very deep online and, and very deep into thinking about the um, implications of, of various sort of online communications and medias and so on. And, and so in Red Pill, it seems like, you know, most people are sort of oblivious to this still. Um, but the, but the narrator, instead of studying Kleist ends up sort of getting like this sort of deep study into that sort of world. And so, you know, spoilers again with this, but it sort of, it, it ends with um, sitting around watching, you know, originally trying to watch the, the Hillary Clinton victory party in the Javits center. Um, and then that sort of the, the, the energy there really starts to deflate and eventually becomes watching Trump's victory. Um, and, and, and so the narrator recognizes, he says, my madness is about to become everyone's madness. And so it's the this, this story about him falling into this, intense paranoia where so at the start he's sort of obsessed with uh a couple things one is his sense that you know he, he's saying that men are supposed to um exert their will onto the world and he doesn't do that and and so he has anxieties around that and the other is he has this intense uh fear for the f- safety of his family and, and is is a obsessed about, you know, that he needs to keep them safe and so on. And he projects uh, both of these onto this guy, Anton, who runs this, you know, sort of low level TV show. And, you know, the sense that Anton is actually part of a vast conspiracy who's trying to exert control on the world and, and tip, you know, global power. Um, And, and that, you know, he's also driven by the sense of, you know, safety of his family and so on, but in this sort of, you know, um, way, which is exclusive, uh, excluding of, you know, immigrants and non-white people and so on. Uh, and, and so that this, this sense of, uh, that this sort of warp drive that he sort of feels in a different way, you know, this fear that is being sort of driven to through media to enact the sort of vast political change. Right. And so his, his project that he's supposed to be there doing is about the lyric eye as a textual technology for the organization of effective experience and a container in which modern selfhood has come to be formulated. 
Um, he has vague ideas about the relentless pressures of self-preservation. Uh, and, and so he's trying to sort of think through this idea of like radical potential of art, um, particularly poetry, and ends up instead sort of obsessed with this idea that, you know, actually, you know, TV and the online memes and so on is what has this, this radical revolutionary potential and is, is, is warping the world in these horrific ways. And, but, but so one of the, the wild things is he's streaming this show Blue Lives, which he's using as an escape from his work in the Deuter Center, which uh, he didn't realize when he signed up for the fellowship is actually like this intense surveillance space that is grounded on these ideas of like transparency and so on. And so he doesn't like being watched while he's working. And so you know, he sort of just keeps sneaking off to just watch TV. Um, but in the show, when he gets cut off, when his Wi-Fi gets cut off in his room, there, this character's family is in danger. And even at the very end, you know, after, after a bunch of time passes and he's back home in New York and so on, he actually never finishes watching the show um you know he goes and anton puts out a movie and he he obsessively digs into all the details of that anton announces a new show and he's obsessed with all the sorts of symbolism surrounding it but he never actually finishes blue lives and he's, he's caught up in this suspended moment where the family is in danger and he imagines that as his own family and he imagines anton as trying through the media to actually enact this sense of, of danger to control, you know, society. Um, and, and then ev eventually actually sort of attacks him for, you know, the, what he says is trying to mentally prepare people for a future in which, in which most people are fighting for scraps in a world run by cognitive elite. Uh, and, and so th there, there's this whole, you know, weird um, dynamic between them. Uh, he, he also calls Anton a few times his adversary, which, which sort of sets him up as this sort of like Satan figure. Uh, and, and so he has this, this, this really wild um, sense of paranoia that he kind of realizes at the end is going to sort of engulf his, his social sphere in the coming years. Um, but that, that sort of really drives him to like the ends of the earth. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, I suppose, you know, we could draw a comparison to, um, to fake accounts in that, you know, they're, they're, you know, if Felix, the boyfriend is sort of the antagonist there, you know, that they, they, they have a similar range of associations, um, because the other thing about Felix is that he's an, he is an artist. Um, and so there is some kind of sense of, and, and then, you know, his, his, there's, there's the question of whether his, um, you know, his conspiracy meme site is a kind of conceptual art project, um, not to mention his, his faking of his own death. So there is some kind of sense that, um, you know, again, these, this sort of darker, realm of the online is also where these kind of more interesting and and potent but at the same time quite um you know sort of 
you know, potentially dangerous uh, experiments are, are happening. Um, so with Anton, you have him as kind of this, um, this sort of protean figure. Um, I mean, I, you know, in a very kind of romantic, you know, you're obviously a scholar of romanticism. So, you know, I, I see Anton as very much a kind of sort of Faustian kind of romantic era type figure. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of this, um, he, he's kind of this, um, this sort of, uh, you know, fascinating anti-hero who the narrator can't sort of look away from or, or avoid being fascinated by, um, you know, he's, I think you could also compare him to some sort of figures in Dostoevsky. Um, so, yeah, he, he, I mean, in some ways he's really the narrator's double in a sense, right? Um, because partly because he's actually realizing what the narrator is sort of um, failing to realize. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, the the thing I ended up being sort of unclear about with this novel in particular was, you know, this this point you made at the end where it's his mad you know that where he says um you know that his madness had become everyone's i mean he does actually end up being institutionalized another spoiler um, basically because he believes as you were describing that you know i mean so there are various things that happens i mean he sort of befriends anton but then he he also kind of confronts him at this uh you know public event and then um he and then he's sort of captured and then he he's he's captured and turned into a meme of just your sort of standard libtard cuck whatever you know and he's sort of mocked by all of anton's sort of alt-right admirers and then that's sort of part of what makes him think that he's you know he's in danger and his family's in danger and then yeah he he sort of um becomes consumed with this paranoia and then, you know, this, it, and then it, the novel doesn't really um, situate itself historically that, that clearly until towards the end where you get, you know, the lead up to the election, to the 2016 election, right? And so it seemed to me there were, there were sort of two ways of, of, I mean, two obvious ways of reading it, of reading that ending, right? One is that, um, you know, he, I mean, one is as a critique of the, the sort of liberal paranoia of the Trump era. Um, and the other was as a kind of endorsement of it. And I, I, I didn't quite know. I mean, I, I argued when I reviewed it that, you know, perhaps it's a strength that that ends up being undecidable, um, that it, you know, it enables a kind of ambiguity. But nevertheless, I also found myself kind of frustrated by that ending. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what because of, of it's, it's, I mean, it has this kind of, manic hilarity through a lot of it particularly the the sequence where he's kind of pursuing anton and um it's you know that again there's a very kind of self-deprecating and self-parodying aspect of the narrator um which you know then it kind of allows for there to be a kind of humor in his his sort of frantic you know panicked um pursuit of this this figure he's become obsessed with, but then the ending felt extremely somber um, and, and sort of humorless. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts were about that, but it, it was something that stood out to me as, as I was trying to 
you know, think through the novel that, that the ending felt like a real um, departure in some ways from the rest of it and, and also left that kind of ambiguity, which, you know, I think there would be sort of positive and negative ways of thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like th there is a level of critique of, you know, some of the, the at least the, the sort of manifestations of, of hysterical sort of reactions in the, in the era where, you know, because he, he so he sees himself mocked online, but he also, you know, in his paranoia starts to think that like all sorts of things are in like these cryptic ways you know, secretly also directed at him and so on. And, you know, part of the problem is he, so he runs out of money. So there's this idea earlier on that, like, if you're in a city and you have cash, you can kind of be anonymous, but eventually he starts racking up credit card debt, uh, just stalking Anton across Europe and like off into the mountains and so on. Uh, and, and so there, there's this, in the shift that happens on election night where this intense, uh, excited enthusiasm for the sort of incoming, you know, Hillary Clinton presidency as that very rapidly, you know, you, you, there is, you know, the, the, uh, I think New York times sort of had like a meter that like was like, you know, 99.9% .9 chance Hillary wins and then over the course of the night, like slowly rotated around to the exact opposite way. The needle. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think they, they said later, like they weren't going to do that again because it was driving people crazy, you know, but he, so he sees that happening um, over the course of a few hours. And, and there's the, this, this recognition of, you know, the, the dangers of that, which is that, you know, he, you know, separate from whatever you might think of like on a policy level, the the way of responding to it he saw the moving very rapidly toward the sort of madness he fell into so this this is why but so when i wrote my um post about red pill uh the, the section about the novel I, I titled 500 mega red pills per second this i think there's a lot going on in this in this novel about the way in which you know coming into this information uh, very rapidly that it, it's, you know, he's supposed to be in like this year long secluded, very sort of leisurely study of this classic poet. Uh, but actually what you end up with a lot is just this very rapid fire, you know, spiraling down rabbit hole sort of thing. That's not actually conductive to genuine understanding, but just sort of, fires off these, um, you know, very emotive responses, which, you know, may even connect into some semblance of truth, but which is, you know, sort of not quite intellectually complete and which is in, in potentially, you know, psychologically not healthy and not sort of sustainable. Um, and also has to be reactive, right? It, it's, I mean, it, it's, you know, his, his entire sensibility, once he gets, you know, kind of absorbed into the, the sort of orbit of Anton is that, you know, he's just, he's completely fixated on this figure and um, can't, you know, he, he can only orient his life around following whatever he says. So in that sense, it is a kind of, 
you know, clear anticipation of the, the, the mood that would follow. Right. Yeah. And, and so what, what did you make of the, there's like a middle interlude where the, so the narrator starts talking to this woman uh, who's cleaning up his room, I, I think. And then it turns out that she had lived in East Berlin and was sort of, uh, you know, really sort of uh, terrorized by the Stasi and so on. And, and so there's a, there's a long interlude in the middle of the novel where it goes back and just gives her na- narrative uninterrupted. What did you make of like that in terms of this idea of like, you don't really know where the political commentary falls? Yeah, um, I thought that was, you know, it was an interesting, I think some people criticized it as just kind of a, a pointless digression. Um, I thought it was interesting because in, I mean, the other part that you brought up that maybe would be worth talking about more is this, you know, we have this um, institution that he's um, that he's housed in in Berlin, right? Which is this this sort of um, foundation, and you know, as you said, it's kind of um, governed by this ideology of of openness and transparency. So, in some sense, it seems like a nod to Soros, perhaps, um, but also it's it's very much, you know, it's. Um, it's a reminder of a certain kind of ideology of the internet that, you know, is perhaps less salient or is definitely less salient today, but that was, you know, quite significant at one time. Right. And, you know, a simple example of this is like all these, I remember all these Silicon Valley CEOs, you know, sort of 10 or so years ago would just kind of say all these dismissive things about privacy. Right. That, that basically, you know, if you need, if you need privacy, then that's because you're doing something wrong. Right. Um, and so there is this kind of, um, you know, the, the foundation is the embodiment of this kind of elite liberal ideology, right. Or at least sort of centric technocratic centrist ideology that, you know, we could think of as, as one version of the kind of dominant, um, regime prior to Trump. And, you know, it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, you have that as the sort of, um, as the, uh, you know, the space that he's occupying in Berlin, but then he's also surrounded by these, um, these sort of relics of totalitarianism, um, both Nazi and, um, and uh, East German. And so, you know, with this, this whole sequence where he talks to this woman who is sort of co-opted into being a Stasi agent um, and, you know, gets her entire story, you know, it, it seemed like it was trying to, um, you know, create a certain amount of irony around um, this, this uh, foundation, which clearly again, in this kind of Sorosian way represents, you know, um, the ideals of the sort of uh, post post Soviet post um, Iron Curtain sort of technocratic centrist uh, um, establishment that you know that that sort of governed the transition and and sort of influenced the transition into um, away from communism, but that you know it turns out is kind of premised on this. Um, this sort of panoptic surveillance regime, which, which is then sort of instantiated in the, I mean, more broadly in the technology that, um, you know, that ironically kind of gives rise to these counter forces that are represented by Anton. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, and there, there's this idea that's in the present in the present Deuter Institute, and that you know was in the sort of earlier eras of this rigid enforcement of you know having no secrets and so on, which is you know what Euler touches on with the the secret diary that she intentionally leaves out, which is then you know runs parallel to to Twitter and the, the way in which you sort of you know, it's not a secret diary of your public social media feeds, but it's these things where like, you're not writing to anyone particularly, you just throw out your ideas and then they get communicated. And there's the, this, this ideal of transparency, which has uh, a lot of sort of cultural capital today uh, in terms of, you know, just sort of micro blogging, live blogging and so on that all, all these sort of little thoughts, you know, just throwing them out there into the world not keeping these things secret, not sort of thinking like, oh, this isn't worth sharing, that everything's worth sharing. You just th- throw as much out there as possible. Um, and the, you know, one of the sort of concluding ideas that the narrator of Red Pill has is that everyone needs to have like a private laboratory to explore ideas and that social media is shrinking this possibility. And, and so I think, you know, beyond just sort of the, the political sort of critiques, I, I think there, there's this idea around this, you know, which is, it, it has these political parallels. So like, you know, with Euler, um, she's sort of obsessed in part with knowing every detail about her boyfriend's life and, and where he is at all times, what he's doing and thinking and so on, because she's afraid that if she can't account for something that later comes out and looks bad, that it'll, it'll impact her too the sort of tenuous relationship uh, in terms of social links around, you know, being outed as, as having sort of unacceptable thoughts. And, and there's this, this idea of, you know, uh, needing some space to sort of think through ideas, um, you know, partly, partly as a sort of social protection, but also just, in order to actually like think through things because this idea of, you know, as you're constantly throwing out the sort of first draft of every idea, it becomes sort of harder to develop that out into a sort of more mature version of it. Um, because then you're sort of tied to that first idea and the sort of communities around it and so on. And, and so this becomes this sort of whole problem. And so you know, the flip side of the, you know, social sphere watching the sort of Hillary Clinton Javits Center party is him sort of sneaking off and going online and watching people on, you know, sort of right-leaning boards online, um, obsessing over sort of Trump victory and ideas of meme magic that, you know, they're trying to, you know, give Trump their power and will him into victory and so on. And, and so this, this, this idea, I mean, that, you know, that, you know, the questionable sort of idea that has been sort of popular over the past several years, though, of like YouTube and the far right rabbit hole sort of type things, you know, that like people are, are being sort of, um, radicalized you know by communities and algorithms in the way that you know once you start jumping on an idea uh you can 
by technological design and also social design, you can only really continue on in that sort of trajectory. Uh, and you're, you're not really sort of welcome to sort of be like, oh, wait, never mind. I'm going to, you know, jump across to this other thing. And, and so, you know, the, the worried about, you know, part the sort of reactionary energy among his sort of sphere and, and what goes on there. And, you know, going back to what we we're talking about very early on about how this is all sort of dated and, and cutting a little too close to these moments is, you know, I think, um, you know, they're, they're, all of these things, I think, have this like, there's a vague, uh, I don't know, almost utopian optimism that, you know, somehow there's going to be, uh, you know, this future after this one sort of uh ruler they don't like where you know everything's sort of just good and there's not some new set of concerns you know whereas i think you know however many years whoever the sort of uh you know next most hated uh you know president or whoever uh is is in power i, I think it all sort of look a bit silly looking back on some of these in the sense of like, oh, we just need to get over this one hurdle. And, and the, that's sort of the, the goal of things. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, Red Pill, I think is interesting in, in that it tries to place it in a much bigger uh, historical framework and so on, but, but is still a, a little bit caught up in this idea of, you know, that somehow it's all leading up into this one election and not, you know, this ongoing project of, you know, surveillance state and forever wars and all of these things that sort of precede, you know, this whole decade and so on. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's a little too much narrow focus sort of curtailing this, but, um, Definitely, I think that that it's a of a benefit to Kunzer's novel that it sort of gives that broad scale of like hundreds of years to some extent. Yeah, I mean, and he's a you know he's an interesting character, and I think you know again he comes at it from I mean these other two novels are both first novels, um, right? So they're basically first novels by millennial writers. Um, Kunzru is a, you know, as I said, a sort of Gen Xer, um, you know, I, amazingly he has this, uh, <laughs> this background in the CCRU, um, where he, he was studying at the university of Warwick, you know, when Nick Land and Mark Fisher and other people were there. And so he really, uh, you know, he, he comes at these questions of, about media and cyber culture with a really rich and interesting intellectual background. Um, you know, <laughs> as something we've talked about before, you know, I think if you follow his Twitter feed, he's, uh, you know, maybe not, <laughs> not particularly more uh, insightful than his, his narrator, as far as his uh, commentaries on contemporary politics have been, but, you know, he is somebody who has a, an interesting kind of intellectual background and was also thinking about media, you know, pretty deeply all the way back in the nineties. And, um, you know, is, at, you know, has, has written other, other novels that are kind of exploring, um, you know, exploring different media forms and 
so you know i i generally like him pretty well as a novelist um and i think you know his his novel is probably a little bit you know it, i think it's it's quite flawed in some ways but i think it also you know has a certain maturity and and some strengths that that may um give it more that will uh, make it worth reading in 10 years yeah also i mean to that point that um fake accounts and no one is talking about this are um well fake accounts is the first novel uh Patricia Lockwood has written some other stuff. I didn't read. She's written poetry and uh, memoir. Is that right? Before yeah. This? Yeah. Um, so, so you know, I mean, some some experience, maybe not with quite this form, but um, but it, something I, that was interesting was sort of like the main thing I wrote because I wrote, I wrote about those two together in the same essay, uh, and one of my main things was sort of connect, connecting it back into. William Wordsworth's Prelude, um, which uh, I'd like to maybe explain that that sort of point a bit. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, that's cool. Go for it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so because basically, so Wordsworth wanted to write this like massive epic poem, um, you know, covering, you know, man, nature and society, very sort of large scale philosophic project um set you know the concern of you know feeling sort of really let down after the french revolution and really sort of you know personally and socially and politically sort of disaffected and you know knowing a lot of his sort of peers as as sort of caught up in, in similar concerns and so he wanted to really sort of just go through this this large scale um poetic accounting of the world uh, and then struggled with that and ends up writing a different epic poem, which is about his own life and the formative moments that sort of fostered and developed his imaginative growth that enabled him to become a poet. And, you know, centering around this question, like, was it for this, this sort of struggle, this, this impasse he's caught at, that, you know, all of these other things happened? And so he's 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 keeps returning over 50 years to to working at and revising bits of this autobiographic epic never quite finishes the other project, you know, really trying to develop um, the sort of background foundational aspects of it. Uh, and, And then so I thought that was that was interesting in relation to fake accounts and no one is talking about this because they keep having these sort of uh, self-reflective moments, which is that, you know, the writing about the sort of internet era is really hard. And every time everyone's talking about it, they, they're getting it all wrong and they're missing all these things and, and doing these things. Um, while at the same time, uh, you know, saying that within their novels in place of kind of just doing it, and kind of just having a novel that that is fully immersed in that, and I, th- I think ultimately Lockwood does sort of immerse more in 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 that space. But but as I was as showing with the Euler example, where it's like, oh, I was on Twitter all day, and then you try to like read back a few pages and be like, so what actually happened? Instead of finding out about the guy faking his death, is you know, just a half a line. It's like. And then I wasted several hours. 
Uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, I think there, there's this um, sense that comes up in both of them of the need for a sort of social novel that really sort of grapples with all of this stuff. Um, and, and Lockwood makes a comment about, you know, that it would need to be someone on the caliber of Jane Austen to really do it. And, you know, and, and so I, I've, I've been looking at a lot of, you know, novels like this in my teaching and, and writing and so on, you know, all the different ways writers sort of struggle with, avoid, tackle these sorts of digital technology subjects. Um, but yeah, so it really just struck me with both of these, the way in which there's the sort of self-recognition of like, um, you know, that th- this, this has to happen, but that they're actually still kind of thinking through some of the more sort of personal dynamics around it and, and not really quite ready to really write the thing itself, um, which, which, you know, I think is sort of um, not actually, you know, a, a failing in, in relation to, to the Wordsworth, right, is that that's actually sort of really useful um, but I think, you know, maybe for some readers is a, is a little um, bit of a disappointment, you know, and, and I think that this idea of like the internet novel as a, as a category or term or whatever is really partly like a publicist invention that every like year or two, there's some novel that gets hyped up as like the great internet novel. So like Joshua Cohen's book of numbers, um, you know, tried to hype up as, as this, but, you know, of course, you know, he knows that there's other stuff, you know, he wrote a review of bleeding edge and so on. And, um, you know, but, but it's always like trying to sort of reinvent the wheel in some ways, but I think there is something interesting, you know, to what I was saying in in my, my introduction about that, these books are setting up, um, models in the individual scenes and, and transitions and so on for how to sort of write about this stuff. Uh, and so even in the, the moments where they don't quite cohere, where they don't quite work out in, in every element, uh, it's still, I think, really interesting to go and read through them and see, you know, these models for, you know, how is it that writers are capturing these very um, complicated, you know, social, personal uh, experiences and, you know, the ways in which things are sort of mediated through all these sort of different platforms and networks and so on. Yeah, so I think that's probably a good place to leave it because in a way it, um, it's, you know, an open-ended thing for us to keep uh, thinking about. And I know that you will uh, continue to be and, and have continued to sort of track these themes in, in other uh, recent fiction Um so, you know, I, again, point people to Tim's uh, Precursor Poets, um, where he writes regularly about this whole range of issues. And um, I'm sure we'll continue to, uh, you know, track this process of literary evolution that we're witnessing. So in any case, uh, yeah, it's been a great discussion. Thanks for uh, taking the time to, uh, to talk about these books. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great to revisit this material and talk through the all these sorts of issues.
Yeah. And uh, you can also follow Tim on uh, Twitter, also at Precursor Poets. So again, for further insights into all of this and more. So thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you.